This is Downtown, the podcast, episode number 116. I'm Rich Kimball, here with Carrie Haskell from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, where we do our daily show, Downtown, Monday through Friday afternoons, 4 to 6 p.m. on the Zone Radio stations of Maine, and streaming audio on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength couple of very interesting conversations for you this time around as uh, we'll talk about a classic movie celebrating its 20th anniversary, Almost Famous, with a podcast host and author Jim Miller in just a moment. And then later in the program, we talk with a TV icon who's also had a very successful movie career as well. Bill Moomy, a child star back in the 60s, Will Robinson on Lost in Space, and before that, appearances on dozens of television shows and films like The Twilight Zone and much more. But has also been making music for a long, long time uh, on his own and as part of the comedy duo Barnes and & Barnes. And then they have a fairly new collection of talented friends that have gathered to release a new album. We'll talk about that with Bill and touch on his TV career as well later on in the podcast. But let's get it underway by welcoming into the show, Jim Miller. Uh, you know his work as an author, has written the definitive biographies of uh, Saturday Night Live, Live from New York, the complete uncensored history of Saturday Night Live as told by its stars, writers, and guests. And a wonderful book about ESPN. Those guys have all the fun inside the world of ESPN. He also produces a terrific podcast called Origins. And uh, this latest season, Chapter 6, dedicated to the film Almost Famous, the Cameron Crowe autobiographical film about uh, his time as a, as a young man following rock groups around the country as a writer for Rolling Stone. Uh, the movie was not an initial success, but it's become a classic over the course of the last two decades. And uh, Jim had a chance to talk with everybody involved in the making of the film, from Cameron Crowe to uh, the actors and all kinds of people, and he's turned it into a wonderful five-part Origins podcast. Here's our conversation with Jim Miller, all about Almost Famous. I love the story you told on the podcast about showing it to your daughter. Can you share that? Sure. I mean, look, I, I tried uh, with all my kids to think about what age they were and what movies were important to show them at different points in their, in their development, and uh, Almost Famous was obviously on my Mount Rushmore of movies that I had to show my kids. And when it just became a question of what age was right. So when my daughter Sophie turned 12, I just decided that it was time. And uh, lo and behold, uh, she still considers it one of her favorites. And uh, three years later, she was asking me for tickets for Coachella. So I <laughs> got what I deserved. Um, it's one of those movies that just kind of like seeps into your pores and doesn't let go. Uh, you asked the question of yourself in the podcast, why an entire chapter on Almost Famous? And, and you listed three very good reasons for that. Well, I mean, look, I, I think that the, the insights that the movie provides into, like, the world of music, the verisimilitude is just unbelievable. And, you know, it's because of that, because, because Cameron was literally following these bands around. And I think that anybody who really wants to understand what it was like back then to be on the road with these bands, um, this is a this is a great showcase. It's a love letter to rock and roll. Um, the second thing that I thought was really important was it's kind of a weird way of looking at journalism back then, mm. that, a journalism that we don't have now. You know, you know what I mean, Rich? Because the truth is. Nobody can afford to just say to a reporter, "Hey, yeah, go go spend a month on the on the on the road with the Almond Brothers," you know, and uh, and they're picking up the tab for all that stuff. I mean, the, the publication, and so I think that's really important. And then the third thing is uh, this idea that uh, you know, just the idea of a coming of age movie and a real beautiful love story that has uh, that that can withstand the the test of time. Um, I just think all three of those things are, are clear and present with Thomas Famous. Well, uh, you got, as Cameron Crowe says, you got the band back together. Uh, everybody involved, uh, cast members, Cameron Crowe, I uh, even tracked down uh, Penny Turnbull, the inspiration for Penny Lane, and uh, so many insights into the making of the film, including the fact that it was almost a very different movie and a very different cast as well, starting with Brad Pitt. 
Right. I mean, one of the things that I was able to get Cameron to talk about was that this, when, you know, he originally started thinking about the movie, he was thinking about Meryl Streep and the role that Francis McDormand had, Brad Pitt in the role that Billy Crudup had, and Natalie Portman in the role that Kate Hudson had. And let's face it, all three of those actors are brilliant, right? I mean, they're just, they're A-list. But it would have been a totally different movie. And so I thought it was really cool the way Cameron talked openly about it. And the other thing that was kind of shocking was that it wasn't like he had coffee with Brad Pitt and said, hey, I'm doing this, you know, kind of semi-autobiographical rock movie. Would you like to be in it? And Brad goes, I don't know. Let's find something else. They worked together for four months. Brad was really into this movie and trying to find a way into this role. And I think that that, to me, says so much about just the process of movie making and what the dynamic between a director and an actor can be. And and then the idea that, you know, look, one day Brad said, I'm out. And, you know, Cameron was devastated, as he put it. But then all of a sudden, you know, when one door closes, another one opens and you get Billy Crudup, who was fantastic in the role. And Billy Crudup I was, took everything so seriously, classically trained actor but particularly learning to play the guitar. And uh, and I thought it was very interesting how caught up he was in that, especially in shooting the concert scenes. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, look, one of the things that I, I, I quickly learned from Billy was that everybody else, I think when you're in a movie and a Cameron Crowe movie, I mean, look, this is Cameron's fourth movie. His third movie was this little thing called Jerry Maguire. <laughs> I mean, this guy is like, obviously the deep end of the pool. And so when you're in a movie, in a Cameron Crowe movie, there's obviously a lot of pressure and you want to memorize your lines and think about your performance. And on top of all that, Billy had to learn how to play the guitar. And he only had like six weeks to learn. And thank God he had Peter Frampton and Nancy Wilson from Heart helping him, but it's still hard. And Billy was in the podcast, I think people listen and hear that he was really honest about how difficult that was for him and how sometimes that made him like miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and Kate Hudson, it seems to us now 20 years out that nobody could play the role of Penny like she did. But uh, is it safe to say she was a different type of Penny than Cameron Crowe originally had in his head? Yeah, you're exactly right, Rich. I mean, because he was thinking about Sarah Polly, the Canadian actress for quite some time, and she's a bit more spiritual. And in fact, when Sarah pulled out, Kate immediately said, oh, my gosh, because Kate was about to, supposed to play Anita, the sister. And when, 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 he, when Sarah pulled out, Kate said immediately to Cameron, listen, please let me, let me play Penny. And he initially said no. I mean, that was, his first, that was the first thing he said. And so it wasn't until Kate was able to kind of win him over that she got the role, and now we can't think of anybody but her. And what a gamble to put an unknown from Utah, Patrick Fugit, uh, in as the lead to carry your film. What was it well, that Cameron Crowe saw in him? Well, I think it was the innocence. I think that he saw in, in look, Patrick was a 15-year-old kid who was just skateboarding and hanging out with his friends, but very innocent, very intimidated about uh, the opposite sex you know, wasn't comfortable around girls. And I think that there was something that Cameron saw in that that made him uh, think that he could do the role. The, the funny thing, though, that Patrick shares in the podcast is that at one point, Cameron says to him, listen, are you really into music? Because, you know, it's a movie about music. It's a natural question to ask, right? And Patrick, though, says at that point, well, I have like a Chumbawamba CD. <laughs> and that was the only thing he had. And so Cameron says to him, well, do you listen to Led Zeppelin? And Patrick's response, we were cracking up when he told me, is he said, uh, I'm not familiar with his work. <laughs> like he thought Led Zeppelin was a guy. <laughs> like he didn't even know it was a group. So, uh, you know, Cameron, despite the fact that Patrick didn't have that music background, saw a bunch of other things in him, and that's what gave him, you know, the courage to, to get the role, to and, get the role. And the albums that uh, we see passed on to him from his sister in the film, those were actually Cameron's albums. Not only were they Cameron's albums, I'm really glad you picked up on that, Rich, but, but guess what? After, he, after Cameron gave Patrick the role, he said, I'm going to give you these albums, and 
the next time I see you, I want them oozing out of you. <laughs> and so Patrick told me about taking those albums, a lot of those albums that you see in the movie that were under the bed, especially Joni Mitchell, Pet Sounds, Led Zeppelin, or whatever. And he went back to Utah, and he just listened to them over and over and over again and became familiar with them. And the truth is, anybody watching the movie, it's, um, it's one of those little Easter eggs for you. You know, it's a little gem because as he flips through, as young William flips through those albums right after discovering them under his bed, I mean, that's the history of rock and roll there. I mean, it's, it, Cameron just made outstanding choices, and it's just a, it's a beautiful collection. We're talking with Jim Miller about his latest Origins podcast, Almost Famous Turns 20. It was such a personal film for Cameron Crowe, particularly the relationship between Elaine and William. And I was fascinated to learn that Cameron's mother was a key part of this process and very much a a hands-on contributor. Well, she was a big force in his life. Who, She unfortunately died um, last summer, but... She was, and, you know, she was also, uh, people might remember her from a scene in Jerry Maguire because she was part of that women's group that meets at uh, Renee Zellweger's house, Bonnie Hunt's house in that movie. Um, And she was also in Almost Famous because she's handing out the diplomas in the graduation scene where William isn't there. But the truth is that um, Cameron told me this funny story that he was a little, you know, it's a little awkward because he's he's writing a real-life story, and he's got his mother on the set, and there's Francis McDormand playing his mother. And, you know, at some point, you know, he said to her, listen, Mom, uh, Francis McDormand has already won one Academy Award, and she <laughs> really knows how to do this, so please don't. Don't, you know, don't try and impose yourself on her and just let her be. And then he said, like 10 minutes later, he saw his mother just like going up to Francis and starting to talk to her and <laughs> kind of buttonholing her. And uh, and afterwards, he went up to Francis and said, listen, is everything OK? And she said, yeah, look, I told your mom, it's not going to be her. It's not going to be me. It's going to be somebody else. <laughs> and I thought that was like the perfect, perfect response. <laughs> How did Frances McDormand draw on her own maternal experiences to, to bring some truth to that role? You know, it's an interesting question. I think that one of the things that Frances talks about in the podcast is that this was one of the first times that she played a mother. And she was actually, you know, her own son was of an age where, uh, you know, she was really starting to feel a lot of shared sensibilities uh, and, and, you know, in terms of situations and stuff like that, um, about uh, Elaine. And so I think that it was a very interesting journey for Francis. And, of course, as as we know that Francis and Kate both got nominated for the uh, Best Supporting Actress. So much of what happened in the film is reflected in real life and so many great stories whether it's Frances uh, using her own motherhood to draw from, or the fact that everybody on the set, everybody in the cast and, and the crew were very protective of Patrick as well. Yeah, so you got, like, it, there's, there's almost that, that moment, that line where um, real life blends into the movie itself because there's Patrick Fugit. He's 15, and he's very innocent, and this is his first, you know, big movie. And, and so everybody on the set, as you say, was protective of him, but they were also protective of William, the character. And so it was, there were a lot of times when um, Patrick would, well, there was one particular time when Patrick said a line to Kate and he was literally, it was Patrick to Kate. It wasn't, it wasn't William to Penny Lane. And, and it was so perfect that Cameron actually wound up using it in the movie. He, he, uh, they're talking, and he, and he says, ask me again. And the way that William said it to Kate was perfect for, uh, you know, basically the, the, the movie. And I think that that's, that rarely happens. Also, one of the great gems you unearthed is that one of the most memorable lines from the film from Kate Hudson was improvised, and that says a lot about her, but also about the atmosphere that Cameron Crowe created. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, I think it's, um, for people who love Amos, Almost Famous, the scene on the bus where um, the, the, the band starts singing Tiny Dancer, Elton John's terrific song together, um, is one of, you know, everybody's favorite scenes. And I think that, 
you know, it's amazing. I think people have been really blown away by it. But but that scene, you know, where Patrick says, young William Miller says, I got to go home. And then Penny Lane looks at him and she goes, you are home. You know, that was not in the script. And I think that that, as you kind of suggest, points out not only a lot about the, that moment, but it also points out that there's Cameron Crowe. Can you imagine working on a script for 10 years to get it right? And you finally have it right. And, you know, 90% of the people in the world directing that movie would be saying, look, we're going to say what's on the script, and then we're going to go on to the next scene because we don't have a lot of time. Uh, you know, because he's already put so much time into the script. But there's Cameron open to possibilities. And, and I think that that just says so much about him as, as a filmmaker, that he was open to those possibilities. And look what it yielded. I mean, that is a perfect line. Cameron talked in the podcast about uh, William uh, being on a journey to heal his family. Uh, is it safe to say that the film did the same thing for Cameron Crowe and his family? I think so. I mean, look, I think that, um, you know, obviously there were certain dynamics that were different, but I do believe that, uh, you know, his sister wound up um, being more back in the fold, so to speak, uh, you know, and I'm not sure exactly how much the movie contributed to that or just, you know, what went on between her and her mother. Um, but I, I do know that it's really interesting to hear Cameron talk about that because at the end of the day, I mean, that's the thing about Almost Famous. It is this amazing movie about music. It is this amazing coming-of-age movie. But ultimately, ultimately, I think it's a movie about you know, a kid wanting to repair his family. And so it's a movie about the family. We're talking with Jim Miller and, and everybody who is artistic, everybody with some level of talent believes that the thing they're working on now, the next project will be the best thing they do. But I was struck by the fact that, that everybody you talk to seemed to realize and, and be fairly at peace with the fact that this may be the best thing they do in their careers. So that's, I got to unpack that question for a second because it's it's really interesting the way you phrase it. Here's the thing: not only do they wind up admitting it, but yes, the key phrase that you use and that I was astonished by is that they're at peace with it. I mean, Billy kind of joked with me and said, "Look, it's been 20 years, so what is that? 365 <laughs> times 10 times two. You know, I've been waiting 20 years for a script like that." And, you know, it hasn't come along, but, I mean, I've done other great things, but, like, I've never gotten a script like that. And, you know, Kate, uh, we talked about that. I mean, sometimes when you're that young, I mean, think about this. Kate's 19, Zoe Deschanel's 19, Patrick Fugit is 16. I mean, Jason Lee has done Chasing Amy by this point, but, you know, not a huge, big role like he had in Almost Famous. And Billy was, you know... Uh, basically in the theater. So all of these people have this amazing movie that's, that, that enters into their life in the year 2000, directed by Cameron. And, and at the same time, you know, look, they've all done great stuff since, but not at this level. And so I think that you're right to use that phrase. They seem really at peace with it, as opposed to somebody who's really bitter. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jim, what's your favorite moment in the movie? We've all got several, but what's number one for you? Um, I, you know, it's so funny because I'm tempted to say you are home. I'm tempted to say the moment when Francis sees uh, William and Anita show up on the porch, you know, when William brought his sister home and they have those incredible hugs. But I have to tell you, I think for me, it's when the very first time Penny Lane, we see Penny Lane and Russell together and Joni Mitchell is playing in the background. Uh -huh. And I don't know how Kate <laughs> pulled it off, but she's smiling, yet she's crying, yet she's, I, I mean, it's such an unbelievable moment because you know that these two people have a past and the way that Cameron shot it. And it's not so much about dialogue. It's just this beautiful, beautiful moment that, you know, um, says so much. I love the movie. It was on cable last month, and I think I watched it half a dozen more times. And then, as, as I told you in an email, I could have binged the entire Origins uh, Chapter 6, all five episodes at once, but I, I wanted to take my time and savor every moment of it. Uh, uh, thank oh, you. for kind. Oh, You did such a wonderful job. It was so great to have everybody back together. And before we let you go, just want to uh, tease it and hope 
to get you back on when it comes to fruition. But your next project sounds fantastic. You're doing a history of HBO. Right. That's a book. Um, that's not going to be a podcast. I've, I've done books on uh, Saturday Night Live, ESPN, and the uh, NCA, the Hollywood Talent Agency. Which, by the way, were all phenomenal. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I mean, HBO, this is... Um, this is uh, this is a big lift because we got almost 50 years, and you know there's there's obviously great shows like Game of Thrones and Sopranos and Sex and the City and Curb Your Enthusiasm and The Wire, and there's just too many to mention. But you also have HBO Sports, you have HBO documentaries, you have things like On Demand that HBO did before anybody else, and uh, it's just uh, it's just a uh, it's a lot to to report on, but um, I'm really loving it. And uh, I think that one of the things that you start to see in this book, which I which I always love, is that, yet again, this is a place just like SNL was to comedy, just like ESPN was to, to sports television, and just like CA was to the agency business. HBO is a place of, like, utter disruption. And uh, they, they don't kind of, like, take what the status quo is for granted. And, in fact, their mission is to basically – blow it all up. And so that's, that's really fun to report on. And, uh, I've been, I feel, I mean, not to get corny, but I feel blessed by the fact that, uh, you know, so many people are cooperating with me. Well, we look forward to that. And uh, once again, thanks for joining us to talk about the tremendous origins podcast, almost famous turns 20 Jim Miller. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, Jim Miller's just uh, so great. Love his books and the new podcast is wonderful as well. And uh, as a longtime fan of Almost Famous, I think I, I put that movie up there. I think in my all-time top three, I'm, I don't even know what number three would be, but movies about rock and roll, the rock and roll life, for me, it's it's Almost Famous and That Thing You Do. Mm-hmm. And then I guess I would throw in probably Hard Day's Night along with that. Can't go wrong with any of those. No, and uh, Jim does a great job, and I'm very excited to... Have him back with us when the book comes out about HBO, which also sounds great. Yeah, HBO is one of those things that's been around for so long that it feels like mainstream, but it really isn't. It, mm. It's it's set new trends every decade or so of the way it presents its material. Right, even before they were doing original programming. So I would look forward to that, and great to have Jim Miller with us. When we come back after this word from Cross Insurance, we talk with Bill Moomy about his career in music and as an actor. That's next after this from Cross. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. cut from a brand new album by Action Skulls, and that's Bill Moomy, Vicki Peterson of the Bangles, and John Cowsill of, of course, the Cowsills, and a longtime member of Mike Love's Beach Boys. And it's an album all about life under COVID-19 that they've put together uh, just in the last couple of months here. We had a great time talking with Bill Moomy about that, that album, his work with Barnes & Barnes, his solo efforts, and of course, his long career as an actor starting uh, in his child star days of Lost in Space and more. Here's Bill Moomy on Downtown. Hi, Rich. Well, I, I, I hope it's my pleasure. <laughs> well, well, that remains to be seen. Well, we'll check in a little bit later. And 
see how it's going here. Uh, love the new album from Action Skulls. Uh, you guys have been working together for a few years now. How did you first team up musically with Vicki Peterson and John Cassell? Um, well, thank you. I'm glad you, you listened to it and, and dig it. Uh, we met actually kind of uh, like an R Gang short. We were uh, at a Christmas party uh, that we had mutual friends at. I'd known John um, through the Beach Boys for several years, but kind of peripherally, we said hello, but we didn't really know each other well. Um, and of course, we both went back to, you know, the the mid '60s when the cow cells were all happening and Lost in Space was on. John and I used to be in, you know, Sixteen magazine and stuff. <laughs> so we would laugh about that. Um, but we were at this Christmas party, and uh, I, my wife and I, Eileen and I, were going. Uh, down the block to Angela Cartwright's annual Christmas party. Uh, Angela, of course, the actress, uh, my sister in Lost in Space, Penny Robinson back in the day, and <clears throat> Sound of Music and Danny Thomas. And, and John was like, wait, you're going to Angela Cartwright's? <laughs> yeah, come on with us. Oh, no, no, we couldn't possibly just go to Angela Cartwright's. I said, yeah, you can. <laughs> so we walked over with John and Vicky to Angela's annual party, and uh, we sat ourselves down at the, and of course they were welcome, and we sat ourselves down at uh, their piano, and it was about 3 o'clock in the morning by the time we decided to leave. <laughs> Too many eggnogs. No, but, um, <clears throat> you know, we were sitting around the piano and just, you know, as it is at a party, we started singing Beatles songs and Beach Boy songs and uh, we were all, the three of us, very, um, very pleased with this quick blend that our vocals kind of created, you know? Uh, and of course, Vicky being in the Bangles, John having been the Cow Sills and, and a long member of Mike Loves the Beach Boys, and my musical history with America, Barnes and Barnes and stuff, we were all pretty natural harmony singers. And uh, we just liked the blend. And well, said after the party, hey, you know, we should uh, see what would happen if we tried to, you know, sing some original music together. Like, just like a little rascal's, hey, I've got a barn. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, hey, i got a studio. And uh, the next thing you know, uh, we were a band. Now, what inspired you to create these uh, songs about our current near dystopia? Well, I, well I, obviously, I, I wish that that hadn't have been an inspiring reality. The album, I believe, A Different World, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that was the first album written entirely about um, America's handling of the COVID-19 mm. virus. I, I started writing that in early March, and the album was, was put out, you know, in, I think, early May. came together very, very, very quickly. Um, I, uh, had, I had played a gig... February 29th with John Sebastian and the reunited Love and Spoonful uh, to 2,500 people. And it was just a wonderful gig. And then two days later or three days later, uh, we were all in quarantine. And um, I thought, well, if that's the last gig I play for a while, that was a good one. And I started thinking about how this uh, pandemic was going to affect different characters. And I wanted to, to write the story of various characters around America uh, and how they would, these characters that were in my mind, they weren't necessarily based on specific people, you know, how they would be relating to this this shutdown, this lockdown, and this, this problem. And um, I wrote 12 songs in like 10 days, which sounds like a lot, but, you know, they... <laughs> They just kind of came out real quick because there was a theme to it. Well, how would this, how would this person who can't see his mother think? How would this person who can't leave his house think? You know, how would this person who hates this political choice or whatever? You know, so it was it was pretty easy, and and I, and I, <clears throat> I realized right from the beginning that I wanted to keep them all within a framework of kind of classic American folk music, all acoustic, no electric instruments. Um, so that it had a kind of a timeless sense about the the music that wouldn't sound dated or, or that it would just, you, it could be the Dust Bowl or it could be right now, you know. Oh, well, and, uh, and mission I, accomplished there because there are, there are elements of folk and pop and blues and, and jazz all through it. And the title cut, Different World Men, the, those those influences, those connections are, are so there uh, early on. It sounds very much like, 
uh, your friends Dewey and Jerry in America, and then by the end, those beautiful Beach Boys-esque harmonies. Yeah, John and Vicky sang fantastically on the whole thing. It was interesting. I had um, I had started writing and recording these songs. I actually played everything on the record myself because they're in their house and I was in my house. And we have been working on what we would consider kind of to be the second Action Skulls album, the proper second Action Skulls album for, you know, a year and a half or so. We were in the pretty close to wrapping that project up when we were quarantined and you know john was off the road for the first time in 20 years for more than a couple of days because the beach boys tour like crazy um and i i I wrote the first song social distancing blues and i just sent it to them not as an action skulls thought but just to say hey what do you guys think this just (laughs) i just popped this one out and they sent it back to me with their harmonies put on it (laughs) and it blew me away because it's obviously a much fuller and, uh, uh, you know, it's just a better sound when the three of us are singing together than when I'm kind of, you know, singing by myself. Um, and I was so impressed with their harmonies that I said, hey, you guys, now you need to sing on these other 11 songs. <laughs> and I kind of lassoed them into it, you know, and Vicky was like, oh, my God, no, what are you doing? <laughs> but they did it, uh, and they did a great job. And uh, it fell together very quickly, so it was meant to be. Well, social distancing blues, that's just the perfect anthem for these times and some some sage advice in there, including your your choice of of reruns to tune into. (laughs) I know. I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't resist throwing in that Lost in Space line. One of my favorites on the album is, I don't believe a single word he says. Um, Vicky likes that one a lot too. You know, uh, it's got that cool kind of uh, Pete Seegery banjo yeah. in it. That and that's you on the banjo? I played everything on the record. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, that's me on my 1962 Vega Pete Seeger model long neck banjo, kind of like the Kingston Trio used to play and Pete played. Yeah, I, I, I broke out all the old folk chops that, you know, that's, that's where... That's where my musical foundation comes from, is American folk music. And, you know, I kind of went on to be a rock and roll guy, but that's how I learned to play was the folk music catalog. So, yeah, I broke out the banjo, which was a a good exercise. Took a couple of takes. (laughs) We're talking with Bill Mooney here on Downtown. I also love your solo work. Your most recent album, Lockford, is just terrific. I think my favorite song on there is is Take Me Back. Did your mom really have the 59 Pink Cadillac? She did. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, my mom had a pink 59 caddy, and she used to drive me to the studio in that for from 59 till about 68, or well, maybe it was more like 66, then she got a Jag. But, um, yeah, I, and you know what? <laughs> I was embarrassed by that car. It was very, <laughs> look at me, you know, and now, right. of course, I wish I had it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that thing was huge, man. It was huge. I would kind of... With no seat belts or anything, I just kind of curl up in the back seat like it was an office and listen to KFWB <laughs> and all the early L.A. rock music. You know, Ricky Nelson and the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean and stuff. I can remember that really well. Uh, what's the story behind "A Piece of My Soul"? I'll never get back. It's a very powerful song. Gee, I, I had just um, I very, very, very rarely uh, paint. You know, but when I do. I have a good time, and I had painted a, a, a little canvas, and uh, that's really where the song started, you know? I, I realized once I was, I, I said, okay, this is done. Like, you know, you, you put your name on the, on the canvas, and it's done. And I realized, wow, you know, okay, that, that exists now forever, and I, I, while I was focused on that, that's where my entire essence was and i'll never get that back now it's gone <laughs> i i that's kind of what that was the uh catalyst for the the rest of that song kind of falling together and then i think it was just kind of once i'd gotten going it was a you know craftsman thing to complete it i haven't heard that one in a while by the way your friends uh, art and artie barnes who were on with us uh, last year i uh, wanted to interrupt the interview to make sure people are aware that uh, barnes and barnes 40th anniversary vinyl of Buhaha is available. The Holidays, the wonderful 
holiday album that encompasses every holiday known to man and Barnes and Barnes t-shirts all available at dementedpunk.com. Yes, Demented Punk has uh, really done a great job uh, reissuing Vubaha and uh, the T-shirts and uh, the artwork and design for the holidays in Lumania album is very impressive. And uh, that was a, it was the first time Barnes & Barnes got back together in over a decade to work on those songs. And uh, boy, it was fun. You know, that's like playing, that's really, truly like playing a character, right? I right. Mean, that's like... When, when in Barnes mode, everything is approached from a, a different mindset than when in kind of, I guess you'd say, normal Moomy mode, <laughs> if there is such a thing. Is that an oxymoron? Yeah. Well, certainly it's a moron anyway. I represent that remark. You started, what, five years old, you, you began acting, but you worked with so many giants in the industry. It's like you... It's like you went to the greatest acting school of all time and learned from the best of the best. Yes, I, I, I completely accept that as, as a valid truth. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, one of the great things about Billy Moomy's career uh, as a child actor, you know, was that there was uh, six years of working, you know, 30, 40 weeks a year before Lost in Space. Um, and I loved Lost in Space. I mean, I would go back to, I'm, hey, I'm on it now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on the real Dr. Smith on the Netflix series. But I loved Lost in Space, never had a bad day, Can, would go back there in any heartbeat. But the point I was making was uh, I had this great eclectic career working on, you know, uh, Twilight Zone with Rod Serling or a, a Hitchcock episode directed by Hitchcock or then hanging literally in Walt Disney's office while he was telling us to call him Uncle Walt and swimming with seals and then doing, you know, like a have gun will travel or a, uh, I mean, I, I could go, you know, obviously I could just sit here and name a few hundred classic 60s shows and famous Lucille Ball and Jack Benny and Bob Hope and Jimmy Stewart and all I, I could go on and on and on but it was an incredible as you said opportunity to 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 learn different different styles different ways to interpret you know a script I mean working with Cloris Leachman which I worked with four or five times is a lot different from working with Lucille Ball you know <laughs> you certainly can't fault either one of them. Working with Jonathan Harris, oh dear, all the pain, take the boy. You know, working with someone big and, and over the top like that, a lot different than working with uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart, laid back and real and calm. Or, uh, it was it was a, a, a great experience all those years. I, and I, I always wanted to, to, to do it. You know, I, I was never pushed or driven or forced to, to, to do any of that stuff. Um, so I don't have any horror stories. I mean, you know, a couple of bad days here and there. But. No, but but you but you created a few. And I have to talk Twilight Zone anytime. You know, we've had Shelley Fabre on and Earl Holloman, uh, Stephen Talbot. And I have to always ask about Twilight Zone, which is one of my favorite series of all time. And you did three of them. You did three of the best in the series history, I think. And, and I think you can make a case that it's a good life is one of the great half hours in the history of television. Yeah. I mean, I, it's been called that TV guide listed it uh, years ago as, as one of the top hundred shows of all time. And it sure holds up, you know, I, I, it's not like I break out the, the DVD, but it, it does run a lot, and somebody will text me and say, "Hey, you know, Anthony Fremont's on right now, or something." <laughs> you know, I'll go look at it, and man, everyone in that cast was just great. I mean, everyone—the tension is so palpable, uh, the the effects so kind of subtle and largely left to your imagination. John Large, Cloris Leachman—I mean, that's just a great, great show. I'm very happy uh, to have, uh, you know, played that character. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's great. It really is great. Rod Serling was a terrific, terrific singular talent, uh, you know. And um, and I remember him because, uh, uh, you know, I did the three of them. I remember him as being a very light presence in reality. You know, you, on, on, on camera he was kind of stolid and focused well, his, uh, yeah, we had his daughter, Anne, on last year, and she said, yeah, that's the side of people 
the, the side of him that people don't know. He was a practical joker. He was funny. He was always having fun with the family. And you know, people saw that, you know, the suit and the, the tie and the cigarette and the countenance and thought, well, that, that's him all the time. But she said, no, that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, I that, uh, absolutely. I, I know Anne, and I've I've read her book, and I uh, um, we've we've talked several times, and yeah, I remember him as. Look, there was one of the greatest things about the Twilight Zone. Of course, uh, basically everything about it was great, but it it didn't have a regular cast. So the great actors that were on it, episode after episode, you know, no, no one could ever develop a fabulous ego or start mm. acting like, you know, hey, I'm the star of the show kind of a thing. You're there for five days or whatever it might be. Rod Serling was the star of that show. And uh, I can remember being him being on the set and everybody from the different departments, the prop department, the wardrobe department, right, the makeup department, the cinematographer, et cetera, et cetera, everybody being really... Um, happy because they wanted to talk to him about the next week's script. They wanted to say, what about the, what if we do this or hey, what kind of color do you, I mean, not that it was color, but you know, how do you see this guy dressed? And he was very light. He was a very light presence. And then of course he'd do those intros and outros and uh, he became this great star of the show. This, this very serious guy. But I, whether I was six, seven or nine, <laughs> <laughs> I do remember him very fondly as being a light presence when he was there. Whereas a lot of times an executive producer or creator, you know, a showrunner, they'll they'll come on to the set and it, it causes tension, right? It, it it causes people to kind of snap to attention and, and go, oh, the boss is here, you know, kind of uh, a different energy than uh, when Rod Serling was around. Uh, Bill, is it true that uh, the CBS came to uh, the folks at Lost in Space uh, fairly early on and said, hey, you've got you to lighten this up a little bit. This show is a, a little bit too dark for what we're aiming for with a family-friendly audience. Unfortunately, that is true. Uh, Irwin Allen's original vision for Lost in Space can be seen in the pilot and in the first maybe 16 or 17 hours of the series. Uh, but CBS had placed the series on at 7.30, which was called, and remember, this is 1965. Uh, we were at the, just the kind of beginning of that wave of pop culture and everything really changing dramatically so quickly. Um, but in 1965, it was still a pretty conservatively run ed, uh, entertainment industry, although it did change fast. Um, they said, you're in the family hour, 7.30, and... Uh, you're scaring children. <laughs> We're getting, you know, mail and responses from communities that think the show is too dark and we want you to lighten it up. So it was a mandate from the network. It was also uh, really kind of synchronicity wise. It was also Jonathan Harris, who had joined the, the series after the pilot had been shot and the series had been picked up. Jonathan joined the series as Dr. Smith. And of course, at the beginning of the show, he was a saboteur and a real snarling villain right. who would have uh, happily sacrificed the, the children's lives in order to, to benefit his own well-being. Um, and he knew, uh, he knew that a character like that, that dark, would uh, not, wouldn't last very long. That he'd be written out of the show, killed off probably after the first season if he continued to play it that that formidably dark. And he started uh, to to lighten his character up to make him more of a of a fool. <laughs> <laughs> I say that with great respect. Make him more of a, a you know a coward, more of a. Uh, character, more of a, a comedian. And Irwin Allen came to him early on, right around the same time that the network had requested a change in the tone. And Irwin said to, to Jonathan, I know what you're doing. Do more. <laughs> and he gave Jonathan kind of free reign to uh, rewrite his own dialogue, which he did. All the alliterative insults to the robot, you cantankerous clump, you bubble-headed booby, you Neanderthal ninny, all of those Jonathan wrote. And uh, he'd come to the set every day laughing, just cracking up. Oh, look what I came up with last night. You know, 
he uh, he loved every minute of playing Dr. Smith, that's for sure. When he became a great friend and mentor to you, and how wonderful that uh, you get to pick up the mantle in, in this reboot of the series. Oh, I, I couldn't be happier about that. You know, and I, I know it's, look, I, I try to live in the now. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not walking around, you know, saying, remember me, I was on Lost in Space too much. <laughs> but... <laughs> But, um, you know, I, uh, I have stayed close to the creative um, projects associated with the franchise from the beginning through current times. I wrote the Lost in Space comic book for a few years, and um, I just have an affinity. You know, I was there from 10 to 14, and those are really formula, formulative years, and, and I loved the character of Will Robinson because he was like a little superhero, and um, who wouldn't have liked playing him as a kid? So um, when they they got the script to uh, for the pilot to the new Netflix series, gosh, like four or five years ago now, I read the script. I, I was you know in the in crowd enough to get a copy of the script, and I realized that Parker Posey's character of Doctor Smith, as that we've come to see, um, she wasn't cast yet, but it was a woman and. And we realized in the script, oh, she's not the real Dr. Smith. It's this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I called the producers personally. And I said, look, I don't know if you guys want to uh, acknowledge anything from the classic series. But I do know that if Jonathan Harris was alive, he would insist on playing that part. And since he's not, <laughs> I know he would say, well, if I can't do it, get Billy. <laughs> and I, I said to them, I said, I would just love to do that, that small part. I said, I think it would be a good ambassadorial kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, just a, a nice way to tell the classic audience, the fans of the old show that, uh, you know, I'm wholeheartedly endorsing the new show. And uh, I know that it would just be a hoot. And it, wouldn't it be great to, to have Will Robinson be Dr. Smith? And, uh, you know, of course, I, I ran the risk of them saying, uh, no, thank you, goodbye. <laughs> uh, but they were great. They were like, oh, would you really do it? Would you? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's why I called. <laughs> and uh, and they, they have been so wonderful uh, to everyone from the cast of the classic show, um, and this new cast, they've bonded like a real family. And, you know, I went up for two episodes um, to Vancouver, and everyone treated everybody just great. And I personally, I think the show is really good. You know, it's much more mm. aligned with the tone of, of Irwin's original vision. Right. You know, of course, it's expanded and gone into different territory, but that's what, uh, you know, it's not like uh, the Batman movies are all the same or, you know, an homage to Adam West, but... Um, anyway, I, I'm very happy to be a part of that project. Beyond all the, the terrific things you've done professionally in your career, I, I look at the fact that you've got a long-term marriage, you have maintained friendships for decades and decades. You, you seem to be doing it right. Did, did you get that from your parents? Did you figure it out yourself along the way? Well, that's a, that's a you know, I, I should be on the couch, I guess, to, to really <laughs> think about the answer to that, to that question. Um, my parents, I was an only child. Um, my mom always went with me to the studio unless I was working on a Western on location. Then my dad would go. He was a cattle rancher. Um, I, 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 I grew up, spent the first 10 years of my life on a cul-de-sac with kids of my, within a year or two of my age in every house in the, you know, late 1950s. And, uh, those were the those were the years, the era where I guess if you were, you know, a middle class white person in the United States of America, you know, life was great. I I literally can remember, you know, walking a mile with my friends to the drugstore with a dollar bill, buying eight comic books and having a Coke at the counter and walking back. Yeah. You know, when I was like seven. And those days are I used to I used to take the bus to the beach by myself and come back when it got dark when I was like 12 uh, you know that's just a different different world um, my parents never never were impressed with show business and they weren't intimidated by it uh, 
they invested the money that I earned for me. So I, I you know, I was never ripped off, and I had the same. Here's an inter- an interesting thought to that line of thought is when I started kindergarten in public school. I went to public school be- until four years of being on the 20th Century Fox lot from 10 to 14. But I went to public school from 5 to 10. And when I started going to public school, I was coming and going. You know, the people from the very beginning that I grew up with in my neighborhood were used to me kind of not being there for two weeks or two months and then being back. So from the very beginning... It didn't impress, or it, it's just the way I was to them. And nobody, I don't remember anybody in public school ever acting like I was, you know, some grooveball, like some, you know, celebrity to them. It was just, oh, where were you? I was doing this Disney movie, Sammy the Seal. Oh, okay. Well, you want to play kickball? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but seriously, I mean that honestly. That was really my, my reality. It wasn't weird. It really wasn't weird. It was fine. So I didn't get a sense of a lack of, of friends, and I'm still friends with some of those people. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, I, I talked to a friend of mine last week for two hours that lived a house away from me from the age of, of when I was three. I have a lot of friends that I've had since I was a young boy, and I'm grateful for that. That says something right there. Well, uh, Bill, I've enjoyed your work uh, musically and uh, your acting work for so many years. It's great to have you back on in the Bill Moomy persona this afternoon. <laughs> well, thanks, Rich. I appreciate it. For those who are interested in exploring uh, you know, any of my albums or music or writings, Angela Cartwright and I have a fantasy novel that we've written called On Purpose. People can go to BillMoomy.com, which is simple, and there's a, a link to a place called the Moomy Mall where there's a lot of things they can peruse should they choose. That's awesome. Bill, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. Um, it was a pleasure. Yeah, I hope we can do it again sometime. Yep, well, I'm here. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not, we're all here. I'm going anywhere right now. <laughs> all right, stay safe, Bill. You, too. Right. Well, that was fun. What an interesting guy. And how great to be able to to really pursue so many different artistic outlets as an actor, a songwriter, singer, musician, author, along with uh, Angela Cartwright. He's done it all, a comic book author. Yeah, he's he's led a life of, uh, I mean, starting as a child actor on The Twilight Zone and, and, I mean, stuff before that. But when you start out with The Twilight Zone and then just create <laughs> a career moving forward from there, it, it, that's an impressive resume. And, you, and we talked about it with him, but uh, I always... I always think when you meet people that have uh, had the same friends for forever, mm. for decades, that, that they got to be okay. They've got to be decent people to maintain friendships for that long. It's a good indicator in, in my life experience as well, yes. And especially in that business where <laughs> things, <laughs> things are pretty ephemeral. Uh, but uh, he was great. A fun time talking with Bill Moomy. Our thanks to him. Thanks to Jim Miller as well. Visit Bill's website. Jim's got a website too. Check out the Origins podcast. And uh, thanks for joining us on our little podcast this week. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown.